0: Our study tonight is on um, the 7th article of the Belgian Confession, which is found on page 55 in the Three Forms of Unity. And this article is entitled, The Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures to be the Only Rule of Faith. We believe that those Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God, and that whatsoever men ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in the Holy Scriptures. But even if we are an angel from heaven, as the Apostle Paul says, for since it is forbidden to add to or take away anything from the word of God, it does thereby evidently appear that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. Neither may we consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with those divine scriptures, nor ought we to consider custom, or the great multitude, or antiquity, or succession of times and persons, or councils, decrees, or statutes, as of equal value with the truth of God, since the truth is above all. For all men are of themselves liars and lighter than vapor. Therefore we reject with all our hearts, Whatever does not agree with this infallible rule, as the apostles have taught us, saying, test the spirits, whether they are of God. Likewise, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house. Uh, Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've talked about the inspiration of the scriptures. We've talked about the canon of the scriptures We've talked about the authority of the scriptures. And in this final article of the Belgian Confession on the doctrine of the scriptures, we talk about the sufficiency of the scriptures. And of course that article very obviously divides into two parts. The first is part of the article. The first paragraph of the article deals with the sufficiency of the scriptures and in what particular areas the scriptures are sufficient And the second part of the article uh, teaches us that no uh, product of men's minds can ever be considered as of equal value with these holy and divine scriptures. So that's how we're going to divide our discussion tonight also, and uh, we begin therefore with the idea of the inspiration, or the sufficiency of the scriptures. Now notice In the very uh, beginning of the article, the uh, Confession mentions three areas in which the Scriptures are sufficient. They fully contain the will of God. That's the first. Secondly, whatever men ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. And thirdly, the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large. So those are the three uh, ways in which the Confession describes the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And I want to look uh, in some detail at each one of those areas that the Confession talks about. First of all, then, the, the Scriptures fully contain the will of God. And I believe that what the confession means here is that the scriptures teach us all of our duty towards God and towards our neighbor and towards ourselves and towards the creation in which God lives. That is, the scriptures give us all the commandments that God wants us to obey. I think that's the the basic idea here. There's nothing we need to add to the scriptural commandments. If we obey those commandments, then we will be perfect. We will lack nothing in what God commands us to do, what God wants from us. And that means, of course, that when a question arises as to what is God's will for me in any particular thing, we should turn to the Scriptures. We should not uh, expect to hear whisperings of the Holy Spirit in our ears. We should not look for signs in God's providential ways with us, but we should look for God's will in the Scriptures. They fully contain The will of God. There's nothing lacking from what God commands us to do once from us in the scriptures. We don't need to go to any other source. And the way that the scriptures teach us, one of the ways that the scriptures teach this to us, is found in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17. So I want to look for a few minutes at those two verses. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now notice the four areas in which the scriptures here say that they are profitable. There are, before we get to that, there are three things here in this these verses that we should notice. First of all, they talk about the inspiration of the Scriptures. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or all Scripture is God-breathed. You might more accurately translate from the Greek. All Scripture is God-breathed. We have already talked about inspiration, so we do not need to go back to that this afternoon. The second thing is the prophet of the Scriptures for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness. And the third thing is the purpose of this prophet of the scriptures and this inspiration of the scriptures, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So first let's pay some attention to those four terms that describe the profitability of the scriptures for doctrine, for reproof, For correction, for instruction in righteousness. First of all, then, the doctrine. That word in in the Greek is a word that means really just teaching. The scriptures are profitable for teaching. The scriptures teach us the things that we need to know the things that we need to know about God, the things that we need to know about His works, the things that we need to know about His creation the things that we need to know about ourselves, the things that we need to know about his salvation and his judgment of the world. Everything that we need to know is contained in the scriptures. They are profitable for teaching. But notice that the rest of the terms then focus not on the uh, doctrine or teaching of the scriptures in general, but especially on our sanctification. They are profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That is, they are profitable to uh, teach us uh, to forsake sin and to live in the righteousness that God has um, called us to, the righteousness of his law. And it's profitable, I think, here to look carefully at the words that the apostle uses, especially the first two of those words. The first word, reproof, is a word that uh, carries with it the idea of conviction as well as reproof. In fact, sometimes it's translated as convince or convict. Just as an example, a couple of examples of that, we can turn to John chapter 8, verse 9. John 8, verse 9, where our Lord Jesus Christ is talking. Uh, excuse me, where our Lord Jesus Christ has been talking to the Pharisees uh, in the context of the woman taken in adultery, then those who heard it being convicted, that's the word that we have here in 2 Timothy 3, being convicted by their own conscience, without one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And in that same chapter, verse 46, Which of you convicts me of sin, Jesus says. And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? So, yes, the idea of reproof is there, but it's reproof that carries conviction with it. It's that reproof that comes from the powerful word of God, pierces the heart, Uh, exposes the sins that are concealed even from our own eyes and convicts us of our guilt in these matters. That's the idea behind that word uh, reproof here. It's reproof that leads to conviction, reproof that leads to the knowledge of our guilt before God. So that's the first thing. The scriptures are profitable for that, the apostle says. They are able to do this. Secondly, the apostle uses the word correction. And this is also a very interesting word. It's a compound word in the Greek that uh, basically means to make straight Again, let me refer you to an example, another example of the use of that word. This time in Luke chapter 13 verse 13. I think this is a fascinating use of that word in Luke chapter 13 because it it shows us the kind of idea that the apostle had in mind here. Luke 13 verse 13 where we read this. Um, This is Jesus uh, healing the woman who was Uh, bowed down with a spirit of infirmity, verse 11. Behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loose from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. That's the word that the apostle uses here in 2 Timothy 3. She was made straight, or... The scriptures are profitable for making straight. And in Acts chapter 15 verse 16, the same word is used in the sense of rebuilding what has fallen down or has been ruined. And so when you you apply that word in this context, what you see is that the scriptures are profitable for uh, our correction in the sense that they straighten out what is crooked in us. They rebuild what has been destroyed. They untwist what has been twisted. They make right what has been perverted. They are profitable for this rebuilding in the way of righteousness. They make us spiritually and morally straight again. Now if you consider those two things, Those two things that we just talked about, reproof and correction, have to do with sin, right? First they reprove us, they bring to us the conviction of our guilt, and then they correct us. They make us straight, they uh, take away the sin which they have exposed. They're profitable for that. But in order to be complete, we need also to understand and to walk in That righteousness which God desires of us. And that's the third term here for instruction in righteousness. And this word instruction, as I've noted before, is a word that includes both the idea of instruction and the idea of chastening. These two ideas, instruction and chastening, were very closely connected in the mind of the Jews and in the mind of the people of God in those days. And the scriptures, therefore, uh, instruct us in righteousness, but they also chasten us (coughs) for the way of righteousness. They teach us the righteousness we need to know, the way that we need to walk. So they don't simply correct sin and then leave us high and dry, but are profitable also so that we know what is required of us now. The ways that we should walk now that we have been taken away out of the paths of sin. So that's the the um, the thing that the apostle uh, addresses first of all, the prophet of the scriptures. And you say, well, he doesn't say anything there about sufficiency. He says they're profitable for those things, but he doesn't say that they are sufficient for those things. The sufficiency comes in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And again, that word complete is a very interesting word. Um, I want to read to you a short statement from uh, Richard Trench's synonyms of the New Testament about the word that's used here. If we ask ourselves under what special aspects completeness is contemplated in artios—that's the Greek word artios—it would be safe to answer that it is not as the presence only of all the parts which are necessary for that completeness, but involves further the adaptation and aptitude of these parts for the ends which they were designed to serve. That is, all the parts are there, and you can talk about, for example, a complete car in which all the parts are there, but also all of those parts are adapted to the purpose for which they were uh, added to the car, for which they were designed to serve, so this completeness, this sufficiency of the Scriptures is to uh, uh, fully make us complete men, if you will, to give us all the parts that are necessary for us to be godly men, uh, men as the Apostle calls them here, man of God, men of God. He. The scriptures are sufficient for that. They are able to make us complete, mature, perfect, lacking nothing that is necessary. And to have every part then in us adapted to the purpose of walking in the righteousness to which God calls us. Walking to His glory, living to Him here in the world and then he not only says that, that the man of God may be complete, but that he may be thoroughly equipped for every good work we are lacking, if we have become conformed to the scriptures as we will be when God has finished his work of redemption, we will be completely thoroughly equipped for doing every good work that God requires of us for obeying every single one of his commandments. We will lack nothing at all which is necessary for knowing and doing the will of God. Now, we should notice, I think, then, that as we're looking at this passage, that this sufficiency is not only to teach us, then, the will of God, but is also a sufficiency to equip us fully for doing it. The scriptures are powerful in that respect. They enlighten the mind, yes, they add to us the knowledge that we are lacking, that we need to know, but they also change us. They bring us into conformity to themselves as that power of the scriptures works in us. They bring us into conformity to themselves. So that's the first area in which the Confession talks about the uh, sufficiency of the Scriptures, sufficient fully to teach us the will of God. The second area is that whatever we ought to believe unto salvation is taught in them. Now, that, that's a, a limited statement, of course. doesn't say whatever we ought to believe, period, is taught therein. There are many things that we need to know about our jobs, for example, skills that we need to learn, uh, knowledge of mathematics and of business and of all kinds of things that we need to know to live here in this world. The Scripture's purpose is not to equip us for those kinds of things, Those are skills we learn through general education. But whatever we ought to believe, unto salvation is taught in them. There's nothing more that we need to believe than what the scriptures themselves teach us. (coughs) We don't need to go beyond. We don't need to speculate about things that the scriptures don't teach us, about spiritual matters. Things, for example, about heaven that the scriptures simply don't talk about. We'd like to know many of those things. We'd like even sometimes to speculate about some of those things. But if we needed to know them, God would give them to us. What we need to know for our salvation is there in the scriptures already. Nothing's lacking in that regard also. So in order to be saved, we go to the scriptures. We look into the scriptures. What is God teaching us? And we don't try to reduce what God is teaching us to a bare minimum. We want to expand the scope of our knowledge as much as possible and know as, and take into our minds as much as possible of what the scriptures actually reveal. We don't want to say, well... I can safely ignore the genealogies of the Scriptures because they're just not important. Or I can safely ignore the ceremonial laws that are found in Leviticus because they're just not important. Or they were for the people of God in the Old Testament. No, we want to get as much knowledge as we can. We understand that God has given us the Scriptures in order that we may have as full and complete a knowledge as is necessary for our salvation. And as we absorb this knowledge, as we take it into ourselves, as we study the scriptures more and more deeply, our salvation is enriched. Our knowledge of God becomes more complete. We admire and adore and praise Him more and more fully for His greatness, His wisdom, His righteousness, truth and mercy and all that belongs to Him. We come into closer fellowship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We know the works of God in Christ and by the Holy Spirit more fully. We take hold more firmly on his promises and on his purposes. Again, Second Timothy 3 uh, gives us a uh, good insight here, verse 15 this time where Paul says to Timothy, From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures make us wise for salvation. And again, of course, it's not just that they teach us the way of salvation, but that the Scriptures, as the Word of God, are powerful, working that salvation in us perfecting and completing that salvation in us, especially as we study them and take hold of them more fully. So that's the secondary in which they are sufficient. They teach us everything we ought to believe unto salvation. The third way in which they are sufficient is that they teach us the whole manner of worship which God requires of us. Now the question here is, of course, what does the confession mean by worship? We could take that word worship as a synonym for a life of service to God. I don't think that's what the confession has in mind because that's really covered in the first point, fully containing the will of God. We could take it as uh, describing the scriptures as sufficient for teaching us uh, the means by which we ought to worship God privately and in our families. Um, And that's possible, and perhaps meant here as well. But I think what the confession has in mind specifically is public worship, the worship of God's church. They teach us the whole manner of worship that God requires of us. And I think what the Confession is doing here is is setting its sights on the practices of the Roman Catholic Church in worship. The Roman Catholic Church had made many additions to worship over the centuries. And they had Uh, so uh, added to the worship of God in his church that the true worship of God was wholly corrupted, and what little remained of the truth of the scriptures in worship was buried under the weight of custom and tradition which the Roman Catholic Church was practicing. So there were bowings and kissings and um, robes and miters, and um, all kinds of ceremonies, burning of candles, and all these additions to the worship of God, which had nothing to do with the scriptures themselves, which didn't come from the scriptures. In fact, some of them are emphatically rejected by the scriptures. And all of this centered, of course, in the Mass, which our catechism calls an accursed idolatry, because there is a bowing down in the Mass to the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, as if they were the very Christ himself. The confession is targeting that and says to us, basically, the Scriptures teach us everything that we need to do in the worship of God. Nothing is lacking. God tells us there in the Scriptures all that he wants us to do In worship and we do not need to go beyond it and we should not go beyond it God rejects in fact every offering that we bring that is from our own minds and from our own hands rather than according to his word we call this the regulative principle of worship the confession not only makes reference to it here, but also um, mentions it again, describes it a little more fully in Article 32, The Order and Discipline of the Church, where it says this, about the middle of that article, we reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God therefore, thereby, to bind and compel the conscience in any manner, whatever. We reject all human inventions and human laws introduced into the worship of God. In other words, what the confession is saying is learn your worship of God from His Word. Go to His Word. Find out from His Word what kinds of sacrifices he wants from you. Let him teach you what is acceptable to him. Do those things. That's the whole manner of worship that he requires of you. Don't go beyond those things. Don't add to them. You don't need to. You must not. There are many different places in the scriptures where this principle, I think, is evident, but there's one verse particularly, which I want to point out, and that's Colossians 2, verse 23, where Paul says says this about the commandments and doctrines of men. These things, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh, self-imposed religion, or to translate more uh, precisely from the Greek, will religion. That is, religion which proceeds from our minds, from our hearts, is of our invention. They have an appearance of wisdom, he says, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The the Confession summarizes all this at the very end of the article, or at the very end of that paragraph, rather, when it says, The doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. That is the doctrine which teaches us the will of God, the doctrine which teaches us the way of salvation, the doctrine which teaches us the whole manner of worship, that is most perfect and complete in all respects. There's nothing lacking. And if you think about that, those three areas that cover all of our lives, don't they? All of our spiritual life. Our obedience to God and Every aspect of life, our knowledge of the way of salvation, and our worship. What would you add to that? The scriptures are sufficient, completely sufficient in all these areas. And so the conclusion is that it is unlawful for anyone, even an apostle, to teach otherwise. That's a quotation from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, If anyone, even an apostle, brings to you any other gospel, let him be accursed. That's how serious it is. It is forbidden to add to or to take anything away from the word of God. And that is because teaching anything contrary to that word adding to or subtracting from that word our presumption and an endangering of our own souls and the souls of men whom we may teach. So that's the the sufficiency of the scriptures. I think the confession has a pretty strong statement about the sufficiency of the scriptures, a very helpful statement about the sufficiency of the scriptures. But now we uh, turn to the second paragraph where the, the confession says basically nothing that men produce may be considered as of equal value with these scriptures. But notice how it gives us a long list then of things which men produce. And we need to, I think, work through that list at least quickly in order to see how thoroughly the confession rejects anything that is the product of men's minds and not the word of God. It mentions, first of all, writings. We may not consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with those divine scriptures. There are many, many saints of the New Testament, especially, of course, who have written about the Word of God, and many have written very valuable things, very helpful and useful things about the Word of God. We can learn a great deal about them. But the key of course, is that these writings are helpful because they direct us to the Word, because they are about the Word. The commentaries and the theologies and the histories, the uh, discussions of biblical history and so on, these are all designed, and and Christians have been engaged in this for centuries, of course, studying the Word, writing about the Word, enlightening us with regard to the word, always bringing us back to the word. And therefore, they're not of equal value with the word. They're secondary to the word, useful to us, we ought to pay attention to them, but not of equal value with the word. The second thing in the list, which the uh, confession mentions here, is custom. And I think here again, the Confession is taking direct aim at the Roman Catholic Church, which had so many traditions, so many customs, so many customs, in fact, and traditions in its teaching, as well as in its worship practice, that the Gospel was buried under the weight of these uh, problems. It was not only false teaching, but the sheer weight and number of the traditions and customs had totally concealed the gospel from the people of God. They had, in fact, taken their custom and tradition and set it on a level with the scriptures themselves and told the people of God, just follow the customs and the traditions of the church and everything will be all right. They exalted their customs and traditions to the level of the scriptures, at least. But we ought to recognize that we have the same tendency often. People get very attached to their own traditions, to their own particular ways of doing things. And they sanctify these traditions and treat these traditions as if they were the very word of God, as if they were the commandment of God himself. Jesus condemns this practice in Mark chapter 7 in regard to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, as you know, were very deeply concerned with doing the will of God, and all of their teaching was meant to expound and explain the law of God to the people of God. And Jesus says to them, you've gone down the wrong path. Look at what he says in verses 3 and following. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. This was not the word of God. This was the tradition of the elders. The elders had decided that the being clean required that you wash your hands in this very special way. They were interested in spiritual cleanness as defined by the law of God in the Old Testament. But they went beyond the law. Said you've got got to wash your hands before you eat. And it has to be in this very special way. You can't do it any other way. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That is, exalting the commandments of men to the same level as the commandments of God. And What's the inevitable result of it? For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things, You do. So not custom or tradition. Customs and traditions are those things which we do in order to keep order in, in many areas of our lives and of our worship. But they can be changed. And we should recognize that all customs and traditions of men can be changed. The law of God cannot Third thing the confession lists is the multitude, or as we would say, the majority. The law of God is not subject to the judgment of the majority. The life of the Christian is not subject to the will of the majority. Our faith is not subject to the decisions of the majority. It was said of Athanasius in his battle for the deity of Christ that he stood against the whole world. Yet he was the one who was teaching the truth. Luther was asked at the consulate at the Diet of Orms why he, a simple monk, thought that he could stand alone against the authority of the church, against all those eminent men who were gathered there at that council, the the uh, cardinals and the king himself and um, uh, prelates and theologians of the Catholic Church and against even the tradition and authority of the church. How do you think that you as a single man can stand against all this, that you even ought to question what the church has decided? And his answer was, My conscience is bound by the word of God. Not by the decisions and teachings of men. The fourth thing that the confession mentions is antiquity. There are some people who always think what is oldest is best. And so they appeal to the apostolic fathers, those Uh, Church fathers who immediately followed the apostles in the history of the New Testament church. And they kind of take the position, even if it's not uh, directly expressed, that because they came immediately after the apostles and perhaps even knew the apostles, they must be right. There's always a tendency in some, anyway, to respect what is old. What is old cannot take precedence over what the scriptures teach. The fifth thing that the Confession mentions is succession of times and persons. And Notice again how the Confession has the Roman Catholic Church directly in its sights. It's talking here about papal succession. It's talking here about that claim of the popes to be able to trace their authority all the way back to the Apostle Peter himself and say that their authority is the the authority of the Apostle Peter, that they are the vicars of Christ on earth, uh, to his church on earth, that they can speak with authority for the whole church of God, and all must obey them. Not succession of times and persons. Nothing may stand above the scriptures. All must be subject to them. And finally, not the council's decrees and statutes of men. That is not the authoritative proclamations of the church. And here we may come to our confessions themselves. We pay close attention to what our confessions have to say. These are Uh, Confessions that had been accepted by Reformed churches for hundreds of years now. They're authoritative proclamations of what the church believes. Well, do they stand on the level with the scriptures? And the answer is no, they do not. They too are subject to the test of the Word of God. They cannot bind the conscience beyond what the Word of God itself teaches, or contrary to what the Word of God itself teaches. The Word of God is the ultimate and all-sufficient authority for our faith and our life. Notice then a few more parts of this paragraph. We may not consider Any of these products of the minds of men as of equal value with the truth of God, since the truth is above all. The scriptures are the truth. They are above all, above all the products of the minds of men. So that's first. Why do we accept only the scriptures as ultimate authority? Because the truth is above all. Secondly, We accept the scriptures as ultimate authority because all men are of themselves liars and lighter than vapor. Even the most honest and trustworthy of men make mistakes, fall into false teaching, guide us incorrectly, none of us, not one man is 100% trustworthy, no matter how worthy, no matter how careful he may be, no no man can be 100% trusted. Only the word of God deserves that kind of trust from us. Only the word of God is sufficient to establish what we need to know, how we need to live, and how we need to worship God. And so whenever we encounter the teachings of men, the Apostle John says, test the spirits. 1 John 4 verse 1, whether they are from God. The scriptures stand alone. They stand alone because they are the word of God. The ultimate authority what God has given to teach us everything that is necessary for us in our service to him and for our salvation. They are a wonderful gift of God to us, to be highly valued by us because in them and only in them we behold the face of Jesus Christ himself, and in beholding the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, are changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. May God bless His Word.